Wednesday 34, Thursday 33 and Friday 32 degrees and we are in fact in the grip of the second heat wave in as many months. Now I've got a couple of climate scientists in the studio with me and uh, Dr Will or Professor Will Steffen and you are from the Australian Climate Council. Good morning, Will. Good morning. And also Emeritus Professor at the ANU. Yeah, that's right. And Inez Harkashuk, studying for a PhD at the Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. And you're the creator of a game that teaches kids how the climate system works. That's right, Ron. Thanks for having me on the show. A pleasure to have you back again, Inez. Now, I've got to ask, is it risky to ask a climate scientist about the weather. What does it mean for me to say that today is 37 degrees predicted? Well, I think uh, what a climate scientist would say about that is that climate is what you expect and weather is what you get. So, so uh, the average monthly maximum temperature for Canberra in January would be somewhere in the upper 20s. Now, what that, that's a statistical, climate's a stati- statistical thing. You need at least 30 years or so uh, of data, hopefully much more than that, which tells you since 1910, which is when the Bureau started data collection around the country in a systematic way, uh, we have a bit over a century's worth of data. If you average for Canberra uh, during that period, you would say that the average January day should be 26 or 27. Of course, you said 37. A couple of things there. One is uh, there's a lot of variability day-to-day, obviously, in the record anyway. But second, since the middle of the 20th century, we've seen a directional trend toward much higher temperatures. So if you looked at the Canberra climate over the last 30 years, it would actually look different from the Canberra climate over the 20th century. So that's sort of a, a quick squares at what the difference is between climate, which is statistically averaging long periods of weather, and weather, of course, includes all the variability, the ups and downs and ins and outs. So that occur weather, weather is inherently a noisy thing. It's absolutely and noisy. short-term time frame, yeah. climate is the long-term trend. Statistical averages. And then you can see some long-term trends, obviously, when you look at that. Well, what, what are the long-term trends? Well, obviously, temperature is going up. Uh, and when you look at the baseline, which climate scientists usually... Uh, use a baseline that we call pre-industrial, which is before we started pumping a lot of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Uh, The global records go back to the late 1800s, so that's as close as we're going to get. There's obviously a little bit of uh, additional greenhouse gas already by 1870, 1880. Nevertheless, if we take that as a baseline, uh, then we can see what's changing. The obvious thing is temperature is going up. We're about 1.1 degrees warmer than we were in the late 1800s. But that's an indicator, not so much for what you feel, but it's an indicator of the state of the whole climate system, how that's changing. So circulation patterns are changing, rainfall patterns are changing, storm patterns are changing, and so on. And you've written this fantastic article in uh, Fairfax Media in the Sydney Morning Herald and the Camp Times, and you use the term climate disruption. Uh, what does that mean? Well, look, uh, first of all, I has, have to say I pinched that term uh, from uh, a colleague, John Holdren, who was the science advisor to former President Barack Obama in the U.S. He used that term because uh, the two common terms earlier on, we all, all talked a lot about global warming because the obvious underlying trend is in temperature. The earth is getting warmer uh, on average. And then climate change is probably the most dominant term now because that captures the fact that more than just temperature, more than just heat is changing. Circulations are changing. Storminess is changing. All this sort of stuff. But change it can be interpreted in many ways. Uh, things change all the time. People's lives change and so on. And it's not a, a terribly descriptive term uh, in terms of what's actually happening to the climate system. Because the climate system for about the past 12,000 years has been relatively stable compared to longer-term changes in the climate. So what we're seeing now is not just changes. We're seeing patterns that we've gotten used to. We've developed our cities and agriculture around. Those patterns are now being disrupted. You can see it in the southern United States over the past few weeks where they've seen a big disruption to what their normal uh, weather, weather is like. And the disruption relates to so-called tipping points. Now, Inez, you wrote a couple of columns for us in our Ask Fuzzy, and a tipping point is really inherent into the concept of disruption. 
What is it? Can you give us an example? Well, yeah, well, I think in this case we're seeing this is really a climate system um, which changes the weather. So we have oscillations over the, over, you know, around the, the, the higher northern and, and higher southern latitudes, and they, they usually follow a, a, a kind of a wiggly path, but they're going very much outside of their wiggly path, and they're starting to look like, you know, very, very strong waves. So those waves are now, you know, kind of going down over the, over the United States, and they go, go down over the United States because of the large landmass, as I understand. Is that f f correct, Will? That has something to do with it, yeah. Yeah, so, um, so they're going down over, that, um, over those areas, and, they're, and then we expect them to go over there. So we're going to have these very, very extreme temperature changes over the U.S. in winter, which then, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, no, climate change is not happening because it's so cold. Um, it is winter, <laughs> so... So I think, yeah, so well, those oscillations are really driving that, the, and also over Australia as well. Yes, well, the, the cold in the US at the moment, uh, Will, you refer to this in your article, yeah. uh, it, it seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? So we say, oh, we, we have global warming, and yet we have this incredibly cold yeah. uh, spell of weather in the Northern Hemisphere. What's, what's going on? Well, as it has said, uh, the, the normal tracks uh, around the North Pole of this very cold air are being disrupted, are breaking down. Uh, and the ultimate driver of, of what's happening there is, is a temperature gradient. In other words, there's a gradient from the very warm equator to the very cold pole. Uh, and that actually guides, forms tracks, of, uh, circumpolar tracks, constrains it yeah. around close to the North Pole. Uh, what's happening, though, is that the, the Arctic area is warming at twice the rate, global rate, uh, and twice, a bit more than twice the rate of the equator. So basically that gradient which forms the guidance tracks is now weakening quite strongly because the Arctic is, is warming much more rapidly than the rest of the planet. Well, if I think of that as an analogy, say it's a marble rolling up a hill, it's much more likely to roll, and if you give it a push, um, up a gentle slope than it is up a steep slope. Is, am I on the right track with that? Well, I, I guess the way, the way to look at it is... is um, that sharp temperature gradient in effect forms a fence or a wall around the North Pole, that steep gradient. And so you get circumpolar circulation. Circulation moves around the Earth as the Earth spins, of course. And so that, if you like, that wall, that atmospheric wall, keeps the cold air up around the pole and keeps the warmer air to the south. But as you weaken that wall, and that, that, that's that temperature gradient, it's easier for that circumpolar to flow spill. to spill out yeah, and right. come down and then loop back up. And when it loops back up, it drags much warmer air up, say, to northern Siberia. So you're not only getting much colder air further south, you're getting much warmer air further north. And that's what's causing some of the problems in Siberia with melting permafrost, other problems up there. So basically, this word disruption, is, uh, as you said, is a good one here because there's a general pattern of circulation that, that we're used to, to, to dealing with. That's now breaking down because of the underlying and change the to the climate. the overall effect, I understand, is greater at the North Pole than it is at the South. Is that true? That's true. You don't see the strong temperature gradient at the South Pole at least not yet, because the South Pole hasn't warmed uh, nearly as much as the North Pole has. It's a good reason for that. The North Pole is surrounded by land. Land is warming more than ocean. Yeah. The, the uh, Antarctica, the, the two hemispheres are quite different. Yeah. Antarctica is a small landmass surrounded by massive ocean, the Southern Ocean. I wanted to mention one thing that Will mentioned just now. He said that, you know, you know, um, the South Pole's warming faster than the North Pole. We see a lot of that globally. People somehow expect sea level to be constant, the sea, sea level rise to be constant, temperature change to be constant, that the impacts that are global are affecting us all equally globally. And that's actually not the case. For example, sea level rise in some places like New Zealand, where New Zealand is actually bouncing back from the last ice age, is much slower in New Zealand than in other places. In places like this um, South Pole in Austria, you have an amplified global warming effect. So, uh, you know, in the old term, so global it's warming. it's very uneven. Indeed. It is very uneven. And that's very important that I think that people understand is that there's not this global constant thing that we're all hoping, f you know, will show the signal. And that's what's making it difficult for the general public to understand. Well, a number like 1.1 degrees, I think you said. Yes. Uh, that sounds like a, a, it feels like a gradual increase, but, but the the but that's the signal. That's the overall signal, that's the overall rather than signal. what we're all experiencing right every day. Stuff, yes. yeah. But the, uh, the, the 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 high variability isn't ge ge geographical. It's also across time, is it not? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, so 
Do we have any idea, Will, of, of what will happen when we hit one of these tipping points or is it, are we heading into such a chaotic time that it's really impossible to know with any accuracy? Well, it's an area of active research and, and uh, we're learning more and more very quickly, but there still is a lot of uncertainty and I think we'll, because there's, there's, there's chaotic behaviour in complex systems, we'll never know for sure when these tipping points uh, might fall over. And the, a probably more important thing is we don't know how they interact with each other. We're just now starting to th talk about what we call tipping cascades, where one tipping point can influence another tipping point. Uh, a good example of that is changing ocean circulation in the North Atlantic, uh, then transmits that signal down through the Atlantic to the, to the Southern Ocean, and that can affect ice shelf stability um, in Antarctica. So we understand a lot of these processes yet, but there's a lot more we need to know about how vulnerable, at what level of, of, of climate change will you start tipping various points. It's, it's interesting then, how, how comple complexity yeah. rapidly escalates. So I, I play a little game on my tablet, and it's a simple one of little uh, towers of bubbles, little balls, and you, and you pull, out the, pull out the balls and you watch them all fall. Now, the rules for that game are incredibly simple. There's only about two or three rules that drive the whole system. But my puny little brain, I, I find it extremely difficult to predict exactly what that simplistic system is, is going to do. But the climate system, the Earth system, is, is like vastly orders of magnitude greater. Well, you mentioned this, you know, that, that we, of course, we, weather is what we um, get, climate is what we expect. Um, I can use a great analogy from Professor Ole John Nielsen at the University of Copenhagen. When he's talking to students, he, he describes this. He says, it's like going to a basketball game, and you're standing on the sidelines, and you throw a basketball into the middle of the court, and within about, you know, three or four seconds, you can predict where that ball will land. And that's basically what we do with our weather. So we have a forecast of now up to 14 days. And we can do that with our climate. It's like saying, you know, in 30 minutes, where will that ball be on the court? We know the rules. We know there are certain criteria, certain values that all go into that, that game. But there's no way at the moment for us to be able to predict, for example, how will the temperature in that room affect the placement of that ball? All those very, you know, what seemingly insignificant things all play up to... Um, to in well, e even if you took the players out of the, of the court and you chucked, a, say, a golf ball in and gave it a hefty swing and trying to predict where it would go would be really, changing, really hard. Changing the rules in the middle yeah. of the game. Yeah, that's, that's a really nice, uh, nice analogy. And there's, there's, there's another one I've heard too, and that's if you're, uh, in, say, in Rome and you're at, at the edge of a crowded piazza and you want to get to the restaurant on the far corner. And this is filled with people all moving about. You can actually predict the first few meters of how you're going to go because that's determined by the immediate position of people. You can also predict the end point because I'm going to get to that restaurant. I'm hungry and it's a good restaurant. But there is no way you can predict how you're going to go through there. So the analogy is we can predict a day or two or three or four now in the weather because, it's because of the antecedent conditions affect uh, where, where we're going to go. So that's the first few meters you move off the the uh, edge of the piazza. We can also predict uh, what the climate's going to be like two or three decades from now because of the inertia already inbuilt from our emissions. But we can't predict how the, the weather so and we, climate's we going to go together. general trends yeah. in the long term, yep. but, but not the fine-grained stuff. That's right. So this, this, this intermediate-term prediction is a real problem in climate. And, uh, and well, of course, the IPCC tried to tackle it in the last report. It's difficult to do. So just because you can't predict the weather three or four weeks from now doesn't mean you can't predict what the climate's going to be like in two decades, given the overall drivers. Uh, well, here, yeah, on, like here on Fuzzy Logic, where do That's <laughs> Fuzzy Logic, indeed. <laughs> yes, the, our logic is fuzzy, but our science is clear. <laughs> uh, Professor Will Steffen from the Australian Climate Council and Inez Harkashuk, who's also studying uh, climate science and how to teach it to people here on Fuzzy Logic. We might break to a short track and when we come back I just want to ask you some basic questions, Climate 101, if I were to come into the day one of your lecture, Will, and you would say this is how the climate system works. Okay, day one, here I am in your lecture, what's the main elements of climate? Yeah, well, I think I'd, st I'd start off by talking about um, how, the, uh, how the Earth system works in terms of the energy at the surface of the planet. 
uh, because that's a key component of any planetary system, uh, not just the Earth. The Earth is really quite interesting because we have life on Earth, and that affects our energy balance and our, and our climate. But that's the, the key point is that um, over long periods of time, by long I'm meaning um, like the Holocene, the last 12,000 years, the planet's pretty much in balance in terms of energy. And you get the seasonal shifts, you get circulation shifts and so on, but that's all within a framework of uh, the uh, of a fairly constant amount of, of energy coming in, balanced by the energy going out. That that can be thrown out of balance by a number of things. It can be thrown out of balance by a meteorite strike, uh, and I think Inez is going to talk about um, subtle changes in the Earth's orbit, which affect um, how much and where so solar radiation comes in can also upset that energy balance. But internal features of the Earth are quite interesting. They can also upset the, the Which balance. is what we as humans are doing We right are now. part of the Earth system, and we are upsetting that balance by putting heat-trapping gases into the atmosphere. Well, that, simple that, as that. Really. That is a major change of thinking, isn't it? Because if I go outside, the world seems like a really big place. If I look up at the sky, it seems a long way up. And it's about what, 30 kilometers or thereabouts to the edge of the uh, the edge of space, I think, roughly. For, for, well, it's 400, 400 kilometers about. But then again, we're talking about very, very, very trace gases escaping. Which, it's the gravitational pull of Earth that we'd consider the the surface of Earth if you're looking at it from astrophysics point of view. Okay, well, the, but the Earth seems such a big place yeah. compared to a human. How can yeah. I possibly be changing? And even though there's lots of us now, how can we be doing that? Well, it turns out there are now seven and a half billion people, and by the time we finished our show today, there will be about an additional 12,000 people on the planet. So Crazy, huh? surely that must be a major, but there's so many of us consuming so much and emitting so much that, that we yeah. now have this effect. Yeah, uh, a few years ago, uh, a, a small group of us decided we would actually try to look at that question in, in some detail. So we published a series of graphs of what we call a human enterprise, 12 of them. So it's our resource use, it's our population, it's our energy, and that sort of thing. What came out of that when we split it up into three groups of humans? The wealthy, 18% OECD countries, Australia, New Zealand, Europe, USA, etc. The emerging economies, you know, the big ones, the big guys like China and India and so on. And then the mass of, of countries where people are still pretty poor. We, we said, is population the real problem? The answer really is, is it's not population, it's a secondary factor. The biggest factor is consumption in the OECD countries by far. So 75% of the global economy, and consumption relates really well with GDP, for example, 75% of the global GDP uh, is, is attributable to 18% of the population. There's huge, huge inequalities in so the human a, part of the system. A figure system. I've heard, tell me if this is roughly correct, Will, that the impact of myself on the planet is roughly a hundred times that of somebody who is living in a, in a poor part of the world. I mean, maybe it's a rubbery figure, but... Uh, it, it would be something something, something like that. The, you would that probably order. see that. Yes, so uh, so we were looking at, at, at averages over all that. So, so um, I don't, we didn't actually do the ratio, but I think what we said was what fraction of the global consumption occurs in what groups of people? And 70, about 75% of the consumption occurs in the OECD countries, 18% of the population. So that gives you an idea of how imbalanced it okay, actually now is. In, uh, internal factors emitting carbon dioxide and methane and other greenhouse gases. Oh, by the way, Will, you, you talked about the terminology that was used. I have a sound clip from the movie Soylent Green, Charlie, uh, starring Charlton Heston, no less, National Rifle Association, uh, yeah, uh, now the late. But anyway, in that movie, his character has a piece of dialogue and he says, the greenhouse effect, The green, we don't call it the greenhouse effect so much, but that, I think that's, the, that's like a primary mechanism rather than the outcome. Do, do, you, do you use that term still? Yeah, I mean, we use the term greenhouse gases yeah. a lot and greenhouse effect. Uh, that sort of stuck. It was an early analogy. Uh, that goes back a long, long way to some, some French uh, scientists who, uh, back almost 200 years ago, over, over 200 years ago, who suggested that these gases, uh, carbon dioxide is the primary one, there are other ones, behave like a greenhouse in terms of letting the sunlight in, but then trapping Not the heat in. and making now it. Now the work. idea actually goes back to the mid-late 1800s, I believe. Early 1800s. Early. Fourier was the first one who actually tried to quantify it. 
and he was around. It was around 1824, I think, if I'm not mistaken. That he actually published a paper mm-hmm. that that made a stab at the fact that these greenhouse gases are actually going to heat the earth if you increase okay. the concentration. Well, now of course our problems are all due to changes in the sun and uh, the earth's orbit and the so-called Milankovitch cycles. And is is that true? Well, look, I mean, a lot of people, when they talk to me about um, climate change, and, I, you know, a lot of people ask me, they come up with some amazing theories. One of them I heard recently was that the Earth is slowly moving closer to the sun because of the gravitational pull of the sun. Um, you, you know, one of the things I have to say is that these things are well understood by scientists, and it's not just a bunch of climate scientists. Climate science is broken down into lots and lots of different fields that are very, very you know, very precise, very remote niches, um, if, you know, if you can put it like that. Um, and so we do understand, you know, Earth's position in our solar system, and we understand it very, very well. Of course, there are, you know, as we constantly repeat, there are parts of that that are not, you know, that are small little aspects of that which are which you know, need clarification. But the really the, the major effects of those things are very so well understood. So there's a little bit of chaos in the orbit of the Earth around the sun, like. but yeah, it's, pretty, it's pretty minor. Yeah, well, um, it, it came up with this Serbian... Um, um, researcher who um, I think it was uh, over 100 years ago, he worked out that we weren't sitting, you know, that the Earth, we knew that already that the sun was at the center of, of our solar system, but we weren't sitting, you know, um, equidistant on both sides from the sun. So there was a slight little, not really an egg shape, but an elliptical um, rotation that we made around the Earth. And of course, as we get closer to the sun, right, because of the you pull of gravity, more, we get a little bit, we go a little bit faster, yeah. right? So that's one factor. That's one factor. Also, Earth is not sitting, you know, north-south as we see it. Um, we can say it's in, in relationship to the stars. And it also has a tilt as it goes around. And, as, and that tilt, of course, puts at the moment, it puts, puts Australia closer to the sun, which is why we have much hotter summers. And that, that closeness is, a, you know, is about five million, 5 million miles. And that might seem like a lot, but it really isn't. And that's why uh, you know, our, our, um, you know, our, our hemisphere is actually warmer. And then there's also the wobble of the orbit slightly. Have, yeah, so we have, so there's no, of course, you know, true north, as you, you know, I think many, even children know this, that you know, Santa Claus's house is constantly moving. Um, we have, um, it wobbles, it's, you know, it's kind of on this little, little um, it tracks a figure eight, if you like, at the north and south pole. And um, so it's constantly changing. So getting to true north is, is you know, a constantly changing <laughs> endeavour, if you like. But, but the combined effect of, I think you said there's about five factors in the Milankovitch yeah. cycle, and when you add them all up, it means that the Earth will go through hotter and colder yeah. periods. Now, the, the glacial periods are a result of this, are they not? Yeah. yeah so the Ice Age is formed because um, I think probably the biggest factor would be probably the... Um, the the eccentricity eccentricity of of, uh, of Earth's orbit, um, so that's one of the biggest factors. But all of these things, they all have different time scales. So one might be twelve thousand years, another might be a hundred thousand years. But they all collectively, um, you know, in the same way that these tipping points, you know, to tipping cascades, they all collectively add up, and we can more or less um, resolve them. Uh, okay. We might uh, break. I'm going to have another go at this uh, track here and see how we go on fuzzy logic. And if the gods smile upon me, maybe it's the eccentricity going on in the <laughs> studio right now. And oh, I can hear some music. I think we'll have a break. Back in a moment here on Fuzzy Logic. And a bit of Cat Stevens here on the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. Our guest today is Professor Will Stephan and Inez Harkashuk, and we are talking climate. Now, uh, what we've been discussing is that there's all these different facets to climate, lots of individual little parts, and they all add up. Now, in the specialisation of science, we, we tend to put uh, research into boxes, but we'll you use the term Earth system. And when we've met in the past, you said, Rod, don't say Earth systems, plural, right? What do you mean by that, and, and why, why is it system? Because at the level of the planet as a whole, it has um, what we call emergent properties or characteristics that can only describe describe the entire system. And one of them is global average surface temperature, which, again, when you look at the Milankovitch cycles we've just talked about, the difference between an ice age and a warm period. By the way, I often ask people in, in classes and so on, what would you guess the difference would be in global average temperature, surface temperature, between an ice age, you know, when a lot of the mm-hmm. northern hemisphere was covered in ice and woolly mammoths were running 
around in a warm period like the one we're in now. And the most common answer I get is somewhere between 20 and 25 degrees. The correct answer is four. So, so, uh, so, so, so that, but that's that, that's what we like, what we like to call an indicator of the system as a whole. So, four degrees had a vast impact on the planet, on the oh, absolutely took, of the planet. It took ice all the way down to Italy. So you basically have, you know, an, an, a, in a very, very cold um, planet all the way. I mean, in Canberra today, it would probably be quite quite chilly you know um so it takes it, 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 we have ice retreat at the moment because we're outside of that ice age but in in an ice age we'd actually have ice um extending further down towards the lower latitudes right now we tend to think of the atmosphere as the air now that's i think it is a primary mechanism but the oceans are really central and possibly i don't know if it makes sense to say they're more significant but what, what's the role of the oceans well, in terms of uh, heat, oceans take up uh, more than 90% of the additional heat that we capture, trap, because of the additional greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. I think 93% was the estimate from the last IPCC report. So that leaves 7%. Um, only 1% of that, uh, well, 1% of the, the total stays in the atmosphere. About 3% goes into ice, 3% goes into land, 93% into the ocean. In terms of the carbon dioxide that we emit, um, only about half stays in the atmosphere. That other half is distributed roughly equally between the ocean and the land. So the ocean is very important in that it takes up about a quarter of our emissions, takes up the vast majority of the extra heat that's being trapped at the Earth's surface. But of course that has ramifications, bleaching coral reefs, changing ocean circulation, uh, eroding under polar glaciers and, and so on. There are limits to how much carbon dioxide the oceans can absorb as well, is that right? Well, there's an enormous amount of carbon, but it's in the deep ocean. The limiting factor is a rate factor. The, the ocean can't move that down fast enough. Right. So there's carbon accumulating in the surface oceans that's changing the acidity because when it dissolves, it forms carbonic acid. So this is why we talk about the Earth system. These things are connected. It's, They're it's, not isolated. It's interesting because when I meet people who deny climate change, and of course I do, um, one of the things I tell them is, is that we could actually just remove, if we just remove the idea of climate change affected by emissions, carbon dioxide emissions, and we just concentrate on the acidification of the ocean, that is a distinctly different problem than you know, climate change. And that affects sea life. It is. It is, yeah. it is the emissions of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere which are being taken up by the ocean, um, which are slowly, you know, acidifying the ocean, lowering the pH, and shells deforming, you know, that we're, we're seeing changes in that. On top of the other effects of um, bleaching, higher temperatures and things like this, our ocean is under a lot of threat right now. Now, the oceans also pump the heat around the planet, don't they, through those big currents? You mentioned one earlier, Will. Yeah. They, that, how significant is that? Well, that's very significant because um, Northern Europe relies on a, a part of that big um, thermohaline circulation. We call it thermo being heat and haline being salt. So it's a combination of density and heat that drives this like a big conveyor belt uh, with surface currents, uh, downwelling, currents underneath, and the water comes back up, often rich in nutrients and so on. But there's been a, a fairly stable pattern through the last 12,000 years. We've uh, relied on that for where people live. For example, Northern Europe benefits from a warm current that comes up along the European coast all the way up to, to Norway. And then when the westerly winds blow across that unusually warm water, uh, that means that people can live at 60 degrees north, like Helsinki, like Stockholm, they like Oslo. They conveyor belt. Uh, so it goes from the Gulf of Mexico right up to Europe. Well, it goes up fr from the tropical uh, Atl Atlantic all the way up uh, along the Western European coastline between um, Greenland and, and Western Europe. What's the likelihood of that itself being disrupted, of that uh, system switching off at some, or, or, or breaking down? Yeah, there's a lot of concern about that because uh, the two factors that drive that uh, circulation, uh, the salinity... Uh, in other words, how much um, salt is in there, which densifies the water and helps it drop, which is sort of the big uh, pump at the top of that. That's actually freshening up because we're losing uh, water from Greenland, and that's fresh water being poured from the ice on Greenland on top of that. So that is actually acting to make the water less dense in the North Atlantic, which is weakening the pump up at the top end of that conveyor. So the concern is, and, and models don't quite agree on this yet, there is a risk that that downwelling will actually shift further south as the waters in the north freshen, which means you could actually get a, co a cooling of the regional climate 
in Northern so Europe. So w- would it be true to say that at this stage it's a possibility, it's a concept? It's a risk. It's a risk, but uh, the, how real it is we won't know for some time. The Europeans are concerned. Absolutely. I mean, clearly concerned yeah. because, of course, if that warm air... Um, um, Got, you know, is removed out of that system, they're going to have a drastic, drastic change. And that could be, a, a, you know, a rather rapid change rather than something that happens over, you know, decades. It could be over, you know, as little as a decade. Again, these are the things that we are trying to resolve. All right. Now, all of these things add up to very large scale changes to the planet and the impact of humans. Oh, I said earlier about how, you know, I just seem such a tiny little human on the surface of this really big thing called the Earth and, and the sky that goes up for, seems to be forever. And a new term has emerged, Will, and this has been the focus of your current work, and it's the Anthropocene. Yeah. What is that? Well, just just to follow on from your comment there, it, what it marks is the transition from us humans being a small world on a big planet to being a big world on a small planet. So that's a way of saying that we have now become a planetary force. So when you look back in, in, in Earth history, uh, the geologists have divided that up into various time periods and they're marked by changes in um, evolution, new species appear, they're marked by changes in in the climate as the climate oscillates between different states, Uh, they're marked by uh, meteorite strikes like the one 66 million years ago that took the dinosaurs out and paved the way for the rise of mammals and so on, you can, and there's a quite intricate time scale, it gives us a lot of insights as to how the earth has changed. But the interesting thing is there's now a proposal that we're in a new geological time period, and that's driven by us humans, and that's the Anthropo from Anthropocene. What are the, what are the markers of it? And, and before you answer, I have to, have to chip in one amusing one that I, I read about a couple of days ago, chickens. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, that, that is quite a good marker. Uh, and the reason for that is when you go back to the mid-20th century, the average chook weighed about 800 grams. The average chook today weighs about 4.1 kilograms, so it's more than four times bigger. But that means its bone structure has changed. So when you look at the wishbone and you look at its thigh bone, it's much, they're much bigger now, more, uh, more dense, more, uh, and just bigger in size. So what stratigraphers, geologists who study the strata, they often look for markers down through the strata. A common marker are skeletons of creatures that are no longer with us or new creatures, but they can see in the strata already a change in chooks, in the chook bones. And that is a marker of a mid-20th wow, so century. so the structure of the chicken has changed so that we can, we can eat them more. And also the, the number and the distribution of them has changed enormously. Oh, yes, and also, also the distribution of other domesticated animals. So if, if you look now at, for example, the mass of all vertebrates on Earth, vertebrates on land, vertebrates are things that have a backbone. So it's mammals, it's birds, it's reptiles, it's amphibians, all that. And you say, let's just divide it up into three. All the wild creatures on the planet, domesticates, chooks, pigs, cattle, and then us humans. And look at the percentages. 32% of that is us humans. 30, About a third. 32% of, of all the mass states, of the mass is 7.5 billion humans added up. When you add up our chooks, pigs, cattle, that's 65%. All right? That leaves 3% for all the wild creatures. So all the herds of wildebeest, the, the crocodiles, yes. the... The things that give us, you know, motivations, for example, to engage with climate change, to, in, in, you know, to start that's with. 3%. Yeah. That's 3%. That's a staggering... That's the Anthropocene. Staggering, that's the, that's the Anthropocene. Anthropocene. What are some of the other markers? Well, uh, there's a whole range of them, and, and they almost all of them really sweep up mid-20th century. Radionuclides from bomb testing, they're a big one. Plastics in the sea and sediments nitrates, spheroidal carbon particle soot, uh, which sweeps up enormously uh, from mid-20th century. In the atmosphere. Well, these are all accumulating in the, in, the, in the sediments, and that's what the geologists need to see. They need to see markers that are going to be there for a long time that are in the, in the rocks that are being formed today, in the sediments at the, uh, in the bottom of the ocean basins and lakes. That's traditionally where they drill down and they look for changes as they look at these cores. And that gives them clues as to how the Earth has changed in the past. This is pretty pretty daunting stuff and, and quite dire, really, when I think about it. If I 
let myself think about it. Uh, here on Fuzzy Logic, we're talking to Professor Will Stefan and Inez Harkashuk. Now, I have a little bit of audio here that I recorded recently with uh, Professor Clive Hamilton, and he is the author of the book called Earth Masters, uh, Requiem for a Species, and other such uh, and similar books. Anyway, here's me talking to Clive recently. So you've written this book and also Requiem for a Species and Earth Masters, and there's some pretty dire messages amongst all of that. What happens if we fall into despair? And, and I'm reminded of the great scene in that movie Downfall at the end of the Third Reich. It depicts the bunker in Berlin as the Soviets are rolling in from the east and the Allies from the west, and they had a party. They had an orgy because they're screwed. And it's called Disaster Euphoria. I'm pretty sure that you would say, don't say something just because it's not true so that we feel good, but is there a danger that we're going to fall into something like that? Oh, look, I think there's a risk of that, and some people will do that. Perhaps some people are doing it already, those who really grasp the implications of the science. But I argue that when you do listen openly and honestly to what the world's best scientists have been telling us for a long time now, and are telling us with ever-increased urgency. And when you recognise that we have changed the world so much that we are going into a hot future and that no matter what we do now, we can, we can certainly mitigate it, but we can't stop it or reverse it, then the natural human response is to despair. If you cling to hopefulness that, you know, Elon Musk will invent some energy technology that will get us out of this mess, then you're deluding yourself. I mean, look, I hope Elon, Elon Musk or someone does invent a fantastic energy technology that, uh, or more particularly, we have a political rather than a technological revolution because we don't need the technology. We need the, we need the political and social change, as we know. So the question is... Are we going to become stuck in that despair? Are we going to uh, engage ourselves in uh, disaster euphoria? Or are we going to go into the despair, face up to the full truth of what we're doing, and then come out of the despair, as humans do, and start working as hard and effectively as Is we can? Is that a little bit like the stages of grieving, anger, denial... I can't remember the five or seven or however many. There are something sort of absolutely into that. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and I talk in Requiem for a Species, I talk quite a bit about grief and the way in which it's, it, it's many people are grieving for the future. Uh, when the book came out, a lot of people were very shocked and, and kind of didn't want to know about it. When I say people, I talk, I mean environmentalists and uh, uh, some scientists, I was rebuked vigorously uh, by an ecologist at a writer's festival I went to when the book came out, who took me aside and lectured me on how you know this was irresponsible to write this book and I should be giving people hope. And I said to him, what, so you think we should lie to people? Oh, no, 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 I don't believe that. Well, you know, let's treat people as adults. Let's treat them as though they can deal with the truth. And if the truth means we, we grieve, then so be it. But, as you're suggesting, Rod, grieving is a process that has stages and we come out of it. doesn't mean we uh, get over it and, you know, suddenly become happy and the same again, but we get through it and we start dealing with life. Well, Clive, you manage a wry smile as you speak, but how has this affected you? How do you feel in the face of all this? Uh, what day is it today? Uh, <laughs> um, uh, look, um, when I wrote Requiem for a Species, uh, I did so, I spent a year writing it after I'd read one paper uh, in particular which just set it out so clearly and so brutally uh, that it sent me into a very deep depression which was actually the natural response. And I came out of it just enough to, to write the book, Requiem for Species. But for that year and the next couple of years, I, you know, I was 
deeply depressed and disturbed by the whole thing. And, and, and at one level I still am. I mean, I ask myself, how do I talk to my grandchildren about this? I don't know the answer to that. I don't want to talk to them about this. But on the other hand, you know, one comes out of it and you, you, you get on with it and you can become effective and uh, passionate and not be absorbed in it. I do know people who have become absorbed in it. I know people who have been immobilised by the grief and the despair. And I don't blame them for that. Uh, people respond to these things differently. I'm more worried about those people who have flashes of despair because the truth comes and hits them, but they immediately suppress it, close it off, and carry on as if everything is all right. I don't think that's the responsible way to, to respond to the facts. And we're talking to Professor Will Stephan and Inez Harker-Shook. Now, just before the track then, I played an interview with Clive Hamilton and I was asking him how it had affected him personally to, to face up to this thing that we are facing on a planetary global scale, the Anthropocene. Now, will you, you remind me of, of, of a policeman or, or somebody who, who sees trauma every day and, and you are up close, in fact, you both are, up close and personal with the reality of what is happening to the planet. Just quickly from a personal point of view, like I, I look out and I say it's a hot day, it all seems fairly abstract, but it's much harder for you to, to disconnect from that. How does it affect you? Well, I think one of the, the things uh, one can do is, is start doing something uh, that starts um, attacking the problem. So one of the things, and the old adage, think globally, act locally, comes into play here. Because one of the things that I've really enjoyed doing is working in an advisory role with the ACT government here in Canberra on actually tackling this stuff. And you start with bite-sized pieces that you can do, like getting carbon out of the energy system. And over the last decade or so, the ACT has achieved that. And, they've, and we've learned in the Territory that not only is that essential for beginning the task of stabilizing the climate, but we're getting economic benefits, social benefits for the Territory. So it's a real positive message. So I think the, the only point I'd make there is, instead of wringing your hands about it, there are a lot of things that can be done now that are becoming more viable, that are becoming cheaper economically, that we can actually start moving so it's, it's eating the chocolate elephant one bite at a time, but focusing on things that you actually can do, Absolutely. rather than drowning in the stuff that you cannot do. Yeah. Is that I mean, one of, one of my hobbies is climbing mountains, and you don't instantly jump to the top. It's one step at a time. But if you don't look at that impossibly high target and say, I'm going to start taking that step and I'm going to pace myself and I'm going to get there. You'll never get there. So that's, that's what you've got to do. But did you go through a period when it dawned on you? you remember a time in your life? When did you first become aware of, of the depth of the situation? Well, I think it's when I was, when I was um, working up in Stockholm, Sweden, as director of the International Geosphere Biosphere Program, which was, I think we're talking, Inez was talking about that earlier, there are masses of different types of scientists who are involved in this. And so my job was try to pull all that together in the program. And it, it, that was the first time I really saw what was happening in the ocean, what was happening in the air, what was happening in the land, what was happening to the ice on the planet, what was happening to sea level. And then the interesting thing is we had to start understanding us, Homo sapiens, which is fascinating. What's happening to our societies? What's happening to our value systems? All that sort of stuff is part of the Earth system. So that, I think, was when I really started saying, wait a minute, this is a really complex problem and we're only ever going to get at it uh, if we understand the earth as a system including us including understanding so us the, the, it's okay there's the the technical aspects there the climate system the way the ocean currents work the uh, the greenhouse gases and so on and then there's the human system the the psychology of people now and there's one of the things that uh, clive said in the interview just now was hope and, and it still resonates with me the way he said the word we have to give people hope he got rebuked by this person uh, what's your take on hope 
Um, I agree with him. I think um, it is a really complex problem. I think we all recognize it. The moment we encounter it, we recognize that this is a threat. And some people do shut down. They refuse to acknowledge it. They deny it. It's the kind of a gut reaction. You're facing something that is, you know, our instinct is to fight or to run, fight or flight response. Um, and I think there are a lot of people who are willing to fight. And I think what, what we mean by fight is not necessarily to stand there with an ice cube against this huge <laughs> phenomena, but to actually look at it as a way that um, there are lots of things inside the, the, you know, the human behavior aspect, which is very much a part of my research, um, where we can see that we can improve our lives, you know, not just improve our lives by, you know, not asking anyone to get back into a tree, um, you know, and wear some, you know, some so animals. All, all the value-add things is what are, you mean. But that's what they are. Nobody's asking us all to become, you know, Birkenstock-wearing hippies, although I really like Birkenstock-wearing hippies. Um, but, we're, you know, we're asking you to move to a, to a common, sustainable future, which, in you know, could have all of the lovely things that we have today, but they also ha they don't have a, have a, a long-term um, global future price on our children, our grandchildren, children and other, other species. I mean, thinking there are 3% of others other than our domesticated species in ourselves is for me, and you know, a really good reason for doing all these things. If you love animals, there's your motivation right there. You know, that's where you get, you stand up and say, no, this is a, this is a problem I want to get behind. Well, I, I have to make a small confession here, live on public radio, and that is I'm writing this book called Renewing Australia, and it's about how we tackle the, the people like yourself, Inez, who are tackling this problem in their own way, and I've only just ordered solar panels for my roof. But guess what? I paid $6,000 for six kilowatts. Now, a friend of mine paid twenty or $30,000 or more for an off-grid system, so that had batteries as well, and that his system is one and a half kilowatts. So there you go. The, the, the cost of solar is just absolutely plummeting. Yeah, but another thing too is let's just remove the guilt equation out of all of this. Like, let's just think about the things we accomplish rather than the things that we don't, because I think we dwell too often on what Mr. Jones is doing down the street and the terrible, you know, pollution that he's doing, instead of going, what, what can I do? Instead of thinking how bad I am, because how bad I am is a place where a lot of people dwell, I think, and therefore they don't engage because. The guilt, just, the guilt, the guilt thing, is yeah. overwhelming, and it's a journey, as as Will said. It's well, I, I do, I do feel that I should at least eat my own dog food. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think my my dog and I sometimes share the same food. He eats people food sometimes. I think, <laughs> but uh, interesting is you know, the, the question of dogs, for example, uh, which is probably the most common domesticated animal that we we share our lives with. But uh, it's that's really interesting that when you look back at what's being found out now when we look at the long history of dogs and humans is that we probably domesticated each other about 100,000 years ago, which is really quite interesting that you saw um, a classic a uh, classic marker of domestication is what we call gracilization of skeletons. They become lighter. Like when you took a wild cattle and then domesticated and it became lighter. Humans became lighter, our skeletons, about 100,000 years ago, at the same time that we see changes in the DNA of dogs. And so there is a hypothesis out there that we didn't just domesticate dogs, we domesticated each other. And so this is, but this is just a model for how we are embedded in the biosphere. We're part of life. We, we, we're separating ourselves at a huge rate through technology and so on. But still, genetically and, and, and cognitively, we are part of life. And that, that gives you enormous hope and gives you many different pathways forward on all this. Well, you, you, you both mentioned the, our connection to nature. And what really strikes me about our civilization is how fantastically sophisticated and complicated it is. And here we are sitting in a radio studio the only signs of life are my two guests sitting in this, across the console from me, but we can be extremely disconnected from it, and so we we don't get a sense of well. If I turn the tap on, right, and the water pours out, I don't see the stream in the mountain, you know, with a pipe going into it and sucking the water. It just comes out of my tap, and then I turn it on to the, the hot tap. And I don't see the poles on the wire and all the electricity and everything that makes all that possible. And so while it's beautifully comfortable, I've, I've lost that connection with what the impact of it is. And would, would you agree it's similar with, with global warming, that it's all rather abstract? It's, it's kind of hard to, to, to connect with at one level. 
Oh, definitely. I think the thing about climate change is that it's the very first problem we have, which is global, which we can't touch, taste, smell, or hear. And, um, and the only way we can do it is by, you know, we have to trust our scientists to give us the information that we need. Um, so I do think that it's, there's this intangible threat that we can't, that we can't quite get our heads around. Um, so I do, and I also think that the other problem, as we mentioned earlier, is that this idea of the nature deficit disorder. We've removed ourselves from nature. But I defy anyone to stand on the edge of the ocean and not be moved. That's within every single one of us. Or standing on the top of a mountain. That mountain might be hard to climb, but you just have to turn around and face that view. And there's not a person on earth who's not moved by nature. It is the most important thing for us. It keeps us well and it keeps us alive. So if we can just hold on to that, we are going to go into a sustainable future. What's your take on that, Will? Well, I would agree 100% on that. That's, that's exactly what we need to do. The one thing I would say is the way you can make climate change tangible is the fact that there is a relationship now between climate change and extreme weather events. There are many lines of evidence to say they're getting worse because of climate change. You can feel a 40-some-odd degree day. Well, the, the heat That's wave that we are currently experiencing right across the eastern seaboard of Australia, for example. Yeah, and the, the Australian Open Tennis Tournament. You see you know, world-class players like Rafael Nadal saying, hey, we can't, we can't continue trying to play tennis in temperatures like this. 64 degrees in the stands. I mean, that is an obscene... That, that's, that's ridiculous. And so if you go back to the Australian tennis tournament 40, 50 years ago, you would never... People wouldn't even think about that. It didn't happen. So that's making climate change it makes it pretty tangible. Makes it tangible. You feel it. Now, yeah. just a very quick question. I should have asked this earlier, but I was listening back to an interview that I recorded with a climate scientist uh, in 2008... And he thought that we were committed to two degrees of warming. How likely is that? Well, I think that we can still cap it at two degrees, but we've got to start moving fast. We can use we use what we call a carbon budget, how much carbon we can burn. Uh, and you can stay within that, but it requires really fast changes, not just in technology, but in values, politics, ideologies. That's probably stuff. a good note on which to end our discussion today. Get your backsides off the chairs, people. Do stuff, and it just could be a small little thing you do yourself. And it's been a great pleasure to talk to you both. Uh, Professor Will Stephan, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Rod. Thanks, Rod. And Inez Harkashuk. And don't forget to check out your column 